So nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, today is going to be the day that I'm going to ruin my life. But people blow it all the time. And as a result, they lose their job, a spouse walks out, the IRS shows up, the blue lights show up in the rear view mirrors. Things creep up on us and they take us out. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this series called In the Crosshairs. And I want you to know, we want you to understand that you are in the crosshairs right now, whether you know it or not. And your enemy wants to destroy you, wants to destroy me. He doesn't care how he does it, only that we go down. So there are these character assassins, if you will. These things that are coming at us to take us out. And again, Satan doesn't care. He's going to be after you in the way of pride, in the way of greed, lust, and anger, all with the intention to take us out. It usually doesn't happen all at once. Again, little by little, we find ourselves becoming victim to these well-trained assassins. They're merciless, out to destroy our character, our relationships, and our future. So there we are, or maybe I should say here we are, in the crosshairs. Um, that little red dot is on our chest, if you will. Like it's got us and it's locked in on us and ready to take us out. Some of you are completely unaware right now that you're on the verge of blowing it big time. It's interesting that with these red dots, um, the military-grade kind that are there on your chest to help the guy who's got the scope on you to know for sure that he's locked in, it's interesting to know that you have to have a special apparatus to see through to be able to see that infrared laser that's on your chest. It's a very expensive piece of equipment that helps the person that's targeting it on you to see what they're aiming at. And if you don't have it on, it could be right here on your chest or on your cheek or on your arm and you don't even see it. So here's my prayer. My prayer is over the next several weeks, you will put on the apparatus, if you will, of the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God to illuminate your heart, your mind, your eyes to see the red dot that's on your chest that's trying to take you out. Um, this series, it's not going to be for the pretty and the perfect. In fact, if that's you and you've got it all, just you just got it all together and you're doing great and life for you is one good choice after another, you can just check out the next four weeks. For the rest of us that are battered and bruised, we need to lock in. We really need to listen to what God has to say to us because I think he's going to say some really incredible things. So we're not gurus today. We don't have it all figured out. We're just some men. We're just some women who are trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to help one another be aware of where we can be taken out and where we can be taken down. As we think about that red dot, I'm pretty convinced that there are some of us in this room who have that red dot on our chest, and we actually know it. We can see it. We know it's there, and you think that you can handle it. It won't take me out. I am the exception. Oh, pride. That's what we want to talk about today, pride. Look at Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Here's what it says. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. 
This proverb is so true, and some of you have seen it in your life, and you've seen it in the lives of others. So I want to go back a little bit into my kind of middle school, junior high days. I want to throw a picture on the screen here of the playground. This is the playground I grew up on right here, okay? You see it on the screen. Uh, That is the same solid steel basketball goal that is still going strong. Uh, I went to a small school in Spyro, Oklahoma, and uh, so the way it worked for us um, once you got in about the sixth grade, you were hanging out with six through seniors. It was just all of you together because we were a really small school. And we lived for basketball. And so every day before school, every break, get done with lunch quick, stay after, we would play basketball on this concrete court with that goal. And there was another goal on the other end that looked just like it, a little full court action going on. In fact, I got to think about my school, school days and, and the playground. Uh, this really has nothing to do with the story, but I just remember this so vividly. Uh, one year we decided, like, we can only wear a jacket if it gets so cold. And so we decided, I don't know, let's say we decided that year like 30 degrees or something. And it kept like going down every year. We kept making another pack. And some, some years we'd kind of like knock it down five degrees. If I remember correctly, by my senior year, I could not wear a jacket unless it was 17 degrees or lower. And we played ball outside all the time. So here we are, we're hanging out. Probably don't have our jackets on. It's probably cold. And uh, there's a senior named Billy Tabor. And uh, I'm in about the seventh grade at this time, and Billy's a senior. Um, my, pretty much my entire friend group uh, that was a part of this school, we were Razorback fans, and Billy was an Oklahoma Sooner fan. And so Billy kind of prided himself and being a Sooner fan, thought it was a big deal, whatever, uh, whether it was football, basketball, whatever. We're playing basketball on this particular day, and a uh, ball goes off the rim, this rim right here. And it shoots out to the right and goes out of bounds this way, kind of down that way down the building. And Billy chases it down, puts his foot on it before it runs into the street, right? And he catches it. Billy, senior in high school, and Billy Tabor, I'll never forget it, he shouted at the top of his lungs, Oklahoma fan, towards us Razorback fans. You've got to go back in your mind a little bit, see how long you've been a Razorback fan. I'll never forget He said, Ron Heary on a bad day. And he was going to make fun of the Razorbacks by hurling up this terrible shot and looking really, really bad. He's a good 35, 40 feet away from the basket. And he chunks this shot, kind of a a chunk shot, kind of hook shot from about 40 feet out. And I don't know if you can see it on this picture or not, but there is a a wire, a, a power line that runs above the goal up there. And Billy shouts this, chunks it, It lands on the wire, rolls down the wire a solid 20 feet, falls off the wire, goes to the rim, nothing but net. Oh, if I were to see Billy Tabor today, guess what I'd say? Billy Tabor, Ron Heary, on a bad day. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness goes before a fall. You've had some of those moments in your life, right? You opened your mouth, you were cocky, you thought this is going to be a great moment, look at me, and then splat on your face. It happens all the time. We wore him out the rest of that year. Any chance we got to say, Ron Heary, on a bad day, we just rubbed it in. Listen, pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before fall. Let me give you three types of pride this morning and just help our minds get wrapped around this, engage our minds and engage our hearts. And as we get into this week, and I'll just go ahead and tell you in the subsequent weeks, we're going to spend about four weeks 
I don't know if I'm preaching these sermons for anybody else, but I know I'm preaching them for me. And so I'm just telling you everything we're going to talk about, like God is like working in my heart and my life, and I pray he'll use the same thing for yours. And so as we talk about three types of pride, we're going to get pretty real here, and I could go longer and talk more about it, but there's going to be moments where I'm going to go, mm, in the middle of this, and you may too, so if you've got that deep like soul, like, ugh, like that's me kind of moment, go ahead and have it. It's all good, even though it's painful, all right? Number one, three types of pride. Number one, I'm better than you. It's pretty simple, right? Happens all the time. I'm better than you. You're not as good as I am. I'm up here and you are down there, all right? How does this pride reveal itself? Because there's some of you that has this, you have this red dot on your chest and you don't even know it. One of the ways that this type of pride reveals itself is through a critical attitude. I'm going to go ahead and go uh, right there. If you find yourself often criticizing other people, like, well, look at her, can't believe she does that, or he doesn't do anything right, or, hey, they think they're all that, whatever it is, it's your critical attitude, you are potentially revealing a proud heart. Pride's tricky, though, like crazy tricky. And here's what I'm learning about pride, is that pride's going to hit you from any angle. Like, it can come at you from over here, over here, or it can come at you from back over there. For instance, you might pride yourself on being better than others. There's some of you in the room, you potentially are priding yourself on not being better than other people. Are you tracking with me? You are like thinking that you are better than they are because they think that they're better than you are. Pride on pride. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Here's what we mean by that. Some people drive their new car with arrogance. Some of you drive your old car with arrogance. You're like, make it all spiritual, right? You're like, look at them with their car payment, not me. I'm holy, right? We figure out ways to like put ourselves above other people. We do it all the time. Man, speaking of spiritual, Christians, listen to me. You better be really, really careful about comparing yourself with others. It's a dangerous thing to do. You're going to land in pride, and you're eventually going to fall on your face. Saying things like, I would never do what that sinful person is doing right now. Or, man, I understand the Bible better than everybody else. I understand the doctrine, so I'm better, I'm safer, I'm holier, I'm more of that. Jesus had conversation after conversation after conversation with a particular group of people in the New Testament about this very issue of spiritual pride. They were called the Pharisees. And their pride was so big, so hard, they couldn't even see it. They had a red dot on their chest, and they never could recognize it. They never could see what it was all about. The reason why I know they couldn't see it is because they never could find themselves being humble enough to follow Jesus. They were just constantly finding themselves being prideful. So one is, I am better than you. The second type of pride is potentially, I can handle it myself. I can handle it myself. I've got this. I don't need any help. You don't want other people helping you is huge when it comes to pride. Listen to me. If you struggle to receive help or assistance, you might be struggling with this type of pride. If you find yourself having a very on-again, off-again prayer life, you might be struggling with this type of pride. In other words, you're a believer, like you believe in Jesus, 
But right now, you're in a moment where you've tried and you can't accomplish it. You couldn't fix it yourself. So we're going to pray about this one because I can't fix this for myself. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray and ask God to fix it. Okay, thank you, God, for fixing it. And then you go back and you kind of set pride over there and you set God over there and you go back to handling things yourself. You're potentially finding yourself with this type of pride of I can handle it myself. You only want God to help you when you can't fix it yourself. When we stop praying, here's what we're saying. We don't need God. Number three. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. Those rules are for everybody else. I'm a smart person. I don't need all of that. That's for the dumb people, right? Dumb people need rules. I know what I'm doing. I can handle it. It doesn't apply to me. I've put in my time. I've earned my exemption. I won't ever get caught. I won't get addicted. In the meanwhile, you are putting yourself and everyone around you at extreme, dangerous risk. How many of you, and we can raise some hands on this one, give me a little interaction on this one. How many of you have ever experienced the truth of Scripture where it says, surely your sins will find you out? Anybody have one of those moments in your life? You're like, I thought I had it hid, but it crept. Oh, yeah, showed up. Listen, if you hadn't had one of those moments and you think you've got it tucked in your pocket and nobody's ever going to find out, it's just you, and, and I'm here to tell you, It is going to be exposed. You are not the exception to the rule. You are playing with very, very dangerous stuff. There's a guy in the Old Testament named King David. He decided for a portion of his life to function this way. It doesn't apply to me is the attitude that he had. He thought he was above the rules. He thought he had earned his exemption. He thought his position and status said, I don't have to follow the rules. And as a result, he kept doing things that were not God-honoring, that were sinful, that were unholy, kept covering them up thinking that would work out and that nobody's ever going to find out. And King David definitely, definitely played around with pride and it caused him to fall. Listen to me, it's either humility now or humiliation later. I'll repeat that. It's either humility now or it's humiliation later. I could go on and on about pride because I consider myself to be an expert in it. (laughs) I'm really, really good at it. Um, The Lord's really working in my heart big time about it right now. None of us are out of its reach. I believe that with pride, this maybe the maybe the rest of them as we talk throughout the month, maybe you're like, ah, that one's really not me. I think that pride has its crosshairs on every single one of us. I think as you really start peeling back the layers of sin and depravity, you will find it's all ultimately rooted in pride. Me thinking and or wanting to be better than someone or someone else. In whatever way we warp that, that's normally the way it comes out. Look at James chapter 4 and verse number 6. James chapter 4 and verse number 6. Everybody having fun? All right, James chapter 4, verse number 6. It says, but he gives even more, meaning God, he gives even more grace to stand against such evil desires. Part of the verse, we'll look at the rest of it in just a second, but look what it says. But he gives even more grace to stand against such evil desires. So for me, you, as a follower of God, to be standing, to be upright, to be alive and moving forward and doing this thing called life and doing this thing called Christianity, we have to have grace. 
It's how we were saved. It's how we stay saved. It's how that we worship. It's how we live. It's all through God's grace. And here's what he says. He gives us even more grace to be able to stand. And so if I'm going to have grace in my life, I've got to receive it. Guess what it takes for you to receive anything? Humility. Receiving something is me saying, you have something that I don't have. You have something that I need that I can't get myself. Thank you. And so the only way that we're going to be able to navigate this Christian life is through grace, by receiving it again and again and again and again. And God is so kind to give it to us. And it says against such evil desires like pride, and the list goes on. The verse goes on to say, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but favors the, say it with me, favors the, some of you didn't say that word because your pride kind of caught you right there. You're like, is it humble or is it humble? And you were worried about what the people around you thought of you when you pronounced that word. Am I right? Like, it just creeps in everywhere. I don't care if you say humble or if you say humble. We need humility. God opposes the proud. How many of you want to be on the opposite end of God? Like, how many of you want to be, like, on the enemy side of God? Like, yes, I want God against my marriage. I want God against my family. I want God against my career. I want God against my relationships. Yes, I love being opposition, being in opposition to God. Even if you're not, like, a follower of Jesus yet, if you're here, you are probably wanting not to be on the opposing side of God we all want to be on the other side, which it says he favors the humble. And so the only way that we can get where we need to be with God is through humility, saying, you're God, I'm not. You've got it figured out, I don't. You're right, most of the time I'm wrong. Humility. So again, it says God opposes the proud but favors the humble. Verse 7. So humble or humble, whichever way you want to say it, think whatever you want to me of me. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So this enemy with this crosshairs is on us. And the way that we're going to defend ourselves, the way that we are going to resist him, the way that we're going to move ourselves out of the way of being in the crosshairs is by humbling ourselves before God. It's just how it works. And look at verse number 8. And we're only going to look at part of the verse. Verse number 8. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. So how do I get close to God? How do you get close to God? We do it through humility. Setting aside our pride, being honest, allowing someone else to help us. Ooh, i got to let somebody help me. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not in control. I don't have all the answers. I'm not Mr. Right. I'm not Mr. Fix-It. That's painful for some of us to admit. But if we're going to function with God, it's where we have to be. With that in mind, check out what Psalm 10 and verse 4 says. Psalm 10 and verse 4. This is the wicked. That's a strong word, right? It's not a word you want to be described as. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. So in this moment where I am filled with pride, I'm acting, at least at the very least, I'm acting like a wicked person. When I'm prideful and I'm saying, I don't need them, I don't need that, and I don't need God, I'm too proud 
to seek God. And it says, in that moment, it's almost as if God is dead. He doesn't exist. Now, most of us wouldn't out loud say, God's dead. He doesn't exist. But with our life and our lack of faith in him and our lack of humility towards him, a lot of times we are saying to him, you're dead. Look at how the NIV translates this same verse. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for him. So we are so full of ourselves. We are so full of our ideas. We are so full of our plans. We are so full of our ways that there is no room for God. And with that, I want to give you the big idea this morning that's so very, very important. And that is this. Pride shuts us in and shuts God and others out. Pride shuts us in and shuts God and others out. I read this somewhere this week, and that is this. When you are full of yourself, there is no room for anyone else. When you are full of yourself, there is no room for anyone else. I'm potentially right now talking into the core issue in your life. For some of you, I'm talking about the core issue in your marriage right now. You are so full of yourself, there is no room for your husband or your wife to get close to you right now. I'm talking to some of you in your career right now. You're wondering why things are so chaotic and things are so hard and things are so this and things are so that. Potentially, just maybe, you are so full of yourself that you're not willing to allow anyone else, including God, to come in and to speak in your life and to help you right now. It destroys everything. Pride is a destructive assassin. It will destroy your character and it will take you out. It will destroy your career. It will destroy your character. It will take you out. Pride is a lonely and dangerous place to be. You just watch any high-profile story that's out there and somebody falling and you look back and you see at some point they just bought in to pride. And they decided that they were this or they were that and they were above this and they were above them and eventually it happens. Well, as I was really studying and thinking about pride and the huge issue I have with it in my life, I just began realizing, man, I got pride over here and I got pride over there. I'm like, yeah, I knew I had that part of pride over there. Uh, but then there's other ones I'm like, I didn't even know that existed in my life. Whoa, that, that, that right there, that, that's bad. That pride right there, I didn't even see that red dot. And, oh, look at that one way, way over there. It only catches me from time to time. But, man, when it does, it is very, very deadly. Pride shuts us in. It shuts God out and others out. And as I feel overwhelmed and stuck, and that's where I felt at moments with this whole thing of pride and praying through this and preparing for today, overwhelmed and stuck, I'm like, I need a savior. I needed some hope. I needed some relief. And maybe that's where you are. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2 and let's look at Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through verse number 8. This is you, followers of Jesus. You must have the same attitude. Okay, a minute ago, some of us had to admit we've got a critical attitude that is not the attitude of Jesus at all. So you must have the same attitude. That Christ Jesus had. So we're talking about the Son of God right now. We're talking about Jesus. Look at verse number 6. Though he was God. Don't miss those three words. He was God. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but you're not God. Some of you needed to hear that this morning, right? Every now and then, I dupe myself into thinking like I'm God or something. Like I'm the one that matters. Like everything revolves around me. And yet here's Jesus. He was God. He didn't just think that he was God. He was God. Think about the massiveness of that for just a moment. He was God. The verse goes on to say, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Do you hear the fairness in there that just got chunked out the window? Everything in my home right now, everybody thinks everything's supposed to be fair. Anybody figured out life's not fair? Y'all, y'all been at it a little bit, right? Life's not fair. Yet we know that, but we still expect it to be fair. We still expect it to be fair. Well, I did this, so I deserve that. Well, I did as much as they did, so I should have gotten what they got. We want equality. We want fairness. We want what we have coming to us when it comes to what we have earned. And yet Jesus, here's Jesus, though he was God, it says in verse number 6, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He said, you know what? I'm throwing fairness out the window. Did he deserve to be treated like God? Yes. And yet he decided to not cling to that. Look at verse number 7. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Now you've given up some stuff in your life, right? You've sacrificed a little bit in your life. You've, you've said, you know what? I want, to do the, I want to do the bigger thing here. I want to do the respectful thing here. I want to do the honorable thing here. And you've set this aside or you've set that aside. Or you didn't do this or you didn't do that even though you deserve to do it. Does not compare to what Jesus did in this moment when it says he gave up his divine privileges. I mean, for us, we think that means like I've got an aisle seat and this poor little lady can't get over me, so I'll scoot over to the middle seat. Man, I gave up my divine privilege right there. Woo, I am a servant of the Lord. Man, look at me. I am so humble. Or maybe you're even better than that. You are humble, and you let her have that seat. And, oh, man, I'm just living for Jesus now, man, like I did something. He gave up his divine privileges. Verse number 7 goes on to say he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. I, I don't know if you know this or not. Very important to catch this. There are human beings, and that's us, and then there's God. He is up there, high, holy, pure, righteous, and then there's us. Leaving your divinity and your place in eternity as divinity to come and live amongst people like us is a massive, massive step down. He gave up so much when he became a human being. This is where we get the story of Christmas from. This is where we get the virgin birth portion of the story, which is so huge to our faith and to our Christianity. This is Jesus becoming a man, God becoming a man. And he says that he set aside what he could have clung to. He set it aside, verse number 8, and he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
Think about this for just a moment. Jesus was right. Now, I don't know how you act when you're right, but I kind of think I'm just above everybody else when I'm right. You know, when I know the answer and you don't, or I did the appropriate thing and you did the inappropriate thing, are you with me? I just kind of go up here and you go down there. And I've been right a few times in my life. And in my head, I've been right a lot of times in my life. But when I'm really, really right, and I'm up here on the moral high ground, whoo, I'm right, you were wrong. Okay? Think about that for just a moment. Those moments when you're in a relationship with someone, you're in connection with someone, you did what was right, and they did what was wrong. Man, we just, we kind of get going, don't we? We get pretty fired up, give them peace of our mind. You let them come on in here because I am large and I am in charge and I am right. Jesus was right. Not some of the time, not just in his mind, but every single second that he lived on this planet, he was right. He always did the right thing. He always gave the right answer. He always went to the right places. He always accepted the right things. He was always, always, always right. Can you imagine always being right? Some of you in the room need to say amen. You can imagine it. Jesus didn't imagine it. It was reality for him. He was right all the time. All the, can you imagine being right all the time? What would you act like if you were, not, not you just thought you were right, but can you imagine what you would act like if you were right all the time? Whoo! It'd be ugly, wouldn't it? Listen to me. Jesus was right. Track with me. Jesus was wrong. When you're right and you know it, and someone does something to you that is wrong, painful, out of the way, not right, unrighteous to you in that moment, whoo, you, you want to you get some payback, don't you? You want to set things straight. You want to have a word with them. You want to, like, get some serious payback going on. Jesus was right. Jesus was wronged. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about getting wronged, and I'm sure you've got some stories in your mind when you were right and they did you wrong, and I'm sure if we were to open the mic up and just pass it around, some really ugly stories would get shared. I, I really believe that. But when I say Jesus was wrong, let me, let me make sure we're not missing how he was wronged. He wasn't just right once and then done wrong. He was right every single time, every single second of every single day of his entire life here on this planet. And when it says that he was wronged, the culmination of all of that being he was wronged was a lot of things like he was ridiculed, uh, like he was doubted, uh, like he was pushed aside, like people didn't believe in him. Eventually it ramped up a little bit more and people started spitting on him and people started casting accusations at him. And eventually, eventually it all culminates Jesus being wronged by them crucifying him on a cross, nails in his feet, nails in his hands because he was always right. How do you justify that in your mind? Not just right in the moment, right all the time, Jesus was right and then Jesus was wrong. I mean like crucified wrong. So they put him on the cross and they crucified him there. 
We have to include ourselves in that because it was my sin and it was your sin and it was their sin that ultimately put him on the cross. There he is, perfect. We've done him wrong over and over again. And our, our wrongness wronged him to the cross. And yet, here's what Jesus does. Jesus was right. Jesus was wrong. And then check this out. Jesus offered restoration. When I'm right and you're wrong, I'm not seeking restoration most of the time. I'm seeing things like retribution, right? Like, Let's make you pay for what you did to me. And yet Jesus says, I'll pay for what you did to me. And when I come back from the dead, I'm going to give you something that you do not deserve. I'm going to restore you with me and the Father because of my grace. Jesus was right. Jesus was wrong. Jesus offered restoration. So humility and obedience for Jesus look like the cross. And yet for us Christians, here's what humility looks like. We pray an apologetic prayer. He goes to the cross. We pray pray an apologetic prayer. And we were humble. What do I mean by that? I mean, like, for me, when I was young, I was like, you're right, I'm wrong. You're perfect, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior, I need a Savior. I'm humble, I need you now. The prayer, if you will, of salvation, an apologetic prayer. And we want to act like this humility thing is like hard for us to bear. And then after we pray this apologetic prayer, he's like, okay, I'm going to die for you. I want you to come live for me. I don't know about this humble thing, man. It's just too much. It's just too much for me. I, just, I think I want to live for myself. I think pride's going to just overwhelm me. Jesus was right. Jesus was wrong. Jesus offered restoration. His act of humility was the cross. Our act of humility is a prayer. Mm. So the only way that I can have humility in my life is not to decide, you know what, I'm not going to be prideful anymore because I don't like the prideful me. And so I'm just going to choose to be humble. The only way that you and I can find ourselves living in humility is to keep a full-on exposed Jesus in front of us. His humility, his obedience, the cross that he bore for my pride, for my sin, for my yuck, for my grossness, for all the evil things that I've ever done in my life, remembering that he died for me. I prayed an apologetic prayer, and the least I can do is live for him in humility. Oh, that Jesus would just overwhelm us this morning to accept his sacrificial act of humility and live for him. So Jesus, he dies on the cross for my sin. He comes back from the dead. He conquers everything that you and I couldn't conquer. Sin, death, hell, the grave. He conquers all of that. And I don't know about you, but when I do something good, I like for people to notice. You know, like, you know, I'm playing the game. I hit the three. You know what I'm trying to do, you basketball fans, right? Like, I, you know, I hit the three. You know what I'm saying? I hit it. That was me. Yo, yo, yo. If I'm playing in the NFL, I get to do a choreographed, like, celebration in the end zone. Woo, look at me. And I'm so humble, I'm going to bring my teammates into it, right? Like, woo, humble, humble. At work, you do something. You may, even do, you may do the humble brag. Oh, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, blah, 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 blah. But you are proud that people are talking about you and what you accomplished. 
And then Jesus, he goes to the cross. He dies a death for my sin, for your sin. He comes back from the dead. He takes his finger. He doesn't point at himself. He points to the Father and says, to him be all glory. And he's calling us to the same. And yet, you're going to get caught up in what kind of car you drive, how you dress, what kind of house you live in, and feeling good about yourself from your moral high ground that makes you better than everybody else. Oh, that we would humble ourselves this morning. I don't want you to have a Billy Tabor moment. I don't want to, I don't want to see you in a few years and say, Billy Tabor, Ron Harry on a bad day. It's a funny story, but it's not funny with what is on the verge of happening in some of your lives. I want to come to you now and say, hey, Billy, man, just don't do it. Like, just keep your mouth shut right now. Like, just humble yourself. Like, the red dot's on you. Like, if the red dot's here on your chest, what if you, like, humbled yourself this morning and you lowered your position just a little bit lower and you got down here in a place of humility before God and you said, I need you, and that red dot can be above you and go over you and miss you and God can raise you back up in his grace so that you can stand and walk again, so you can put on the armor of God, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the shoes of the gospel, man, like the belt of truth, the, the, uh, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, praying always like Jesus is right, Jesus is wrong, Jesus offers this restora- restoration to you and he's like, follow me in humility. Maybe you've never prayed a prayer of an apology to Jesus yet. This morning I want to invite you to pray and receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. You have to do it in humility. He's going to begin changing you. He's going to be speaking in your life in areas and just doing some radical things in you. Jesus is right. Jesus is wrong. Jesus offered restoration. Let's pray.